are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. I hope you all are well. Before we get to it today, I wanted to follow up on my mammogram. For those of you who didn't listen to the show I did on breast health and menopause with Dr. Amy Commander, first, I encourage you to check that out. It was a great episode. And second, in the intro of that show, I revealed how I had confessed to her after the show that it had been more than 10 years, definitely more than 10 years since I had a mammogram. And she really persuaded me to make the appointment. She gave me her cell number in case I needed moral support. And she was just so damn kind that I knew that I had to make the appointment and follow through with it. And it was something that I had been really putting off for, well, a decade or more. Um, And I did. And while I was explaining all that in the intro, I broke down crying, which felt like such an overreaction. But my podcast producer, Carrie, convinced me to keep the intro as it was because she believed it would touch people. And it did. I heard from many of you who thanked me for being vulnerable and said that you were scared, too. Uh, One woman actually shared that it took her three times just to listen to the episode because breast cancer scares her so much. And I wanted to just give a little context to that and talk about this a little more because it is something that touches us so very deeply. Um, you know, most of my adult life, I had not really been particularly afraid of breast cancer. You know, my Nana had a lump removed when she was 70, but she never had radiation or chemo and lived into her 90s. And most of the women I had known personally had been okay, you know, if they had had the disease, though certainly I have heard all the stories that the rest of you had and you know, it's a scary thing, right? And I do have very dense breasts, which over the years would literally alarm some of the practitioners during routine visits. And in turn, that seeped in and made me feel kind of alarmed about my own body. And maybe I should be more concerned about my risk. And then when I was in my early 30s, I had a fibroadenoma removed, which is, you know, a non-cancerous benign mass. So it got me, you know, more concerned. And when I turned 40, I made an appointment to get screened for a mammogram because I just wanted to take all the precautions that I could. And they did the mammogram and I went to get dressed and a woman opened the door and called me back into the office and time stopped. And I was like, oh, shit, here here it is. So we went back and she said, I just want to do a manual exam. So I lay back on the exam table And she started doing the exam and she was like, oh, I can feel your heart pounding. I'm so sorry. You're just below the age. Your insurance will cover this. So we needed to do this for insurance purposes. And it's been a long time. So my memory of exactly why all this was is fuzzy, I guess, because I was only 40 and not 45. There was some insurance code thing. I have no idea. But I can tell you that at that moment, that it that was it like that moment is burned into my brain and I never went back and I know that's stupid but I also write about health for a living 
And I spend a lot of time reading about all the kinds of things that can go wrong with you. And I'm also a catastrophic thinker. So as the years went by, my creative brain convinced me that when I finally went to get a mammogram, they would find something terrible and that would be it. And I know that's not rational. I invite you to have my brain for a day if you'd like to join the party. It's just the way I operate. So I literally had to go through all the worst case scenarios to make peace with them and get my ass to that appointment. And I wanted to cancel it many times. At some point, I just had to keep telling myself, if I have cancer, it's not going to go away just because I don't get screened, right? Like that's that's all I kept. I kept talking rationally to myself. Like if they find something, that's because it's there. And if it's there, it's not going to go away just because you don't go and get screened. So my appointment was on Friday, November 18th at 2.30, The whole week I was jittery. I was also dreading the lectures I was sure I was going to get, you know, like, what took you so long? Why haven't you been here? I was also dreading the fact that even if they didn't find something that was obviously cancer, they'd probably call me back for something suspicious. But I got there and it was super easy and not one bit luxury. Everyone was very nice. No one asked me what took me so long. I didn't get any talking to's though they did schedule me for next year's appointment before I even sat down. So that was kind of funny. And I did make that appointment. The mammogram itself, I opted for a 3D screen because I do have those very dense breasts. Uh, And it was just as I remembered it, sort of ludicrous as they twist and turn you around and ask you to hug this very unhuggable machine and have two giant unergonomic plates smush your breasts from every angle Aside from silently wishing that some woman would devise a better system already, I kept my sense of humor and it was fine. And they said they'd call if anything was amiss, but otherwise I'd get a letter in a week or two. And when the phone didn't ring for two or three days, I felt better. When a letter still didn't arrive 10 days later, I just looked up my records online. And I'm clear, no masses, no calcifications, nothing suspicious. And I really do feel like a weight has been lifted. And I feel much less scared about the whole thing now that I'm back on track. Uh, So thank you. I just wanted to say all that to give some context and to thank everyone who sent such kind messages. And to any woman out there who is where I was, just scared and struggling, feel free to send me a message. We're all in this together. All right. So on with this week. This week, I have an amazing guest, Kim Vopney otherwise known as The Vagina Coach. Kim is a pelvic health coach and a menopause support practitioner in training. She helps women prevent and heal incontinence and prolapse so they can continue living their active athletic lives. She is also the author of Your Pelvic Floor and the founder of Pelvian Wellness, uh, which is a company offering pelvic health programs, products, and coaching for women in pregnancy, motherhood, and menopause. Kim also certifies other fitness and movement professionals to work with women with core and pelvic floor challenges through her core confidence specialist certification and pre and postnatal fitness specialist certification. And Kim comes to all this through very personal experience. Kim has experienced a stage two uterine prolapse and a stage two rectocele. We talk all about that in the episode. She reversed the uterine prolapse with a combination of hypopressives, which are exercises that she talks about in this episode too, and pelvic floor exercises. And she lived with the rectocele for about nine years and eventually had surgery to fix it after trying all the more conservative methods. 
She reached out to me because she knew that there were many women in the audience who, like her, wanted to lift heavy and be active and athletic, but were struggling with these pelvic floor challenges. And I'm so glad she did because it wasn't just a great conversation, but personally really enlightening. Kim also runs what she calls the Buff Muff Challenges to help women learn to train and get in the habit of training their pelvic floor, which includes teaching women how to do kegels and engage their pelvic floor correctly. And on day one, I learned that I had not been doing these things correctly when all this time I thought I had been. I never actually relax my pelvic floor, which is a problem. And so now I'm doing these synchronized breathing and Kegel exercises, and it's been really eye-opening. And she also has the best vagina puppet that she uses to demonstrate what she's explaining. It's amazing. So I encourage everyone to check out her work at vaginacoach.com, and I'll put links to her Instagram and her website in the show notes. All right, a little housekeeping. I would like to first thank all the hundreds of women who came out for our Hip Play Not Pause Virtual Summit on Saturday. If you couldn't make all the sessions, the replays are available for you anytime. Thanks again for joining us. I love that there are so many experts helping us through this journey. And speaking of amazing experts, if you haven't already checked out our first ever Feisty Menopause Performance Retreat that we are holding this February in Lake Nona, Florida, please go to feistymenopause.com and check that out. It is going to be super fun and super educational. The retreat includes two nights at Lake Nona Wave Hotel, Adari Motion Analysis, which is a state-of-the-art machine that analyzes your movement patterns to help you prevent injury, private strength and conditioning sessions, nutrition sessions, and on Sunday, we get this private menopause DECA event, which is super fun, non-competitive, hands-on training and performance session. This is our first time doing anything like this, so we are keeping it small. Space is limited to about 20 participants, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Check it out, feistymenopause.com. As always, I invite you to follow us at Feisty Menopause at Instagram and Facebook, sign up for my weekly blog at feistymenopause.com, and continue sharing the shows with your friends and on your socials. I am loving all the reviews that keep coming in, and the show continues to grow, and I appreciate it as we go into our third year. This is so exciting. Finally, a quick thanks to Prevenex for their continued support of the show. I got a really awesome review um, of the Joint Health product that I that I use from a listener. And Lorena says, I initially bought this product for wrist pain, but pleasantly discovered it stopped additional pain I didn't know I had. After four days of taking this, I slept through the night without tossing and turning because my hips and shoulders no longer ached. It was a real eye-opener. I shared this with several family members, so I ran out of pills prior to my next auto shipment and was quite desperate to receive more. Thankfully, I have them now. Lifesaver. I fully agree. So thanks, Prevenix, for your continued support. All right, enough of me. Let's hear a couple words about our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. 
They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat. So they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like feisty menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, plus even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice-cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. All right. Well, Kim, I'm so glad that you reached out to me to um, share your expertise because we have a lot of women in our audience. You know, we we advocate for lifting heavy and jumping and our, our, our listeners run and do all these things. And you are 100% correct when you reached out and you're like, I'm sure that there are a lot of women who want to do that, but they have some problems, you know, that might mm-hmm. prevent them from doing that. And I'm very excited to have this conversation. To start, I would love you to share your own personal story because you have your own personal experience with a lot of what we're going to be talking about with the pelvic floor today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, I mean, my sort of passion started early on in a weird way. I remember seeing a childbirth video in grade six and thinking, no, no, thank you. But I still (laughs) went home and I looked at my mom a little differently and- it looked at the women in my life and thought, okay, well, they did it and they're still walking around and they're still doing things. However, I did also notice that my mom, who was an avid runner, slowly started to not run as much and oh, she man. would complain of back pain and she had surgery for incontinence. So my early exposure to what pregnancy and childbirth, how it can influence the body was something that wasn't really appealing to me. I I, I was an athlete. I liked exercise. Uh, I wanted to be able to hold a tampon in. I wanted to be able to have pleasurable sex, like all these things, right? So so that was my early exposure. And I grew up fundamentally saying I had even in my sticker album a saying that was like, I'm never having babies. I'm never having children. And 
it wasn't until I met my now husband and decided I did want to start a family that I was introduced to kind of the concept of pelvic health, really. And that's where it started. I I watched my sister-in-law give birth. She used midwives. She was in a sideline birth position, which I know is protective to the pelvic floor. So that was my, again, another introduction to something different than what we see in media. And my midwives had recommended a biofeedback device to me called the EpiNo. And EpiNo stands for no episiotomy. And it's a product from Germany. And essentially, it, it was inspired by women in Africa who use gourds of increasing size to prepare their perineum and pelvic floor for, for birth. And a doctor went to who, who, who witnessed this, took this idea and made it more mainstream and kind of took what Dr. Arnold Kegel, so we've kind of heard of Kegel exercises, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, but Dr. Arnold Kegel used something, a biofeedback device called a perineometer. So the Epino sort of blended this gourd philosophy with a perineometer to create a biofeedback device that would help women connect with their pelvic floor muscles prior to birth and help introduce sensations of stretch and pressure with the intention of reducing the likelihood of tearing. So this made sense to me. I purchased one. I had a great experience. I didn't have any external tearing, um, even though my son crowned sideways, which is the widest way for a babe to come out. And my midwives, I used midwives. I was in a sideline birth position as well. However, they said, they remarked that it was, you know, very surprising that I had no abrasions or tearing. And so with my limited knowledge at the time, it was like, okay, great. I didn't tear and therefore I won't have incontinence like my mom did. And that was the end of my story kind of thing, right? But um, but I, I also saw this product and I said, I think more people should know about this. So I contacted the company and said, hey, can I be a distributor? And it was meant to just be a side thing. And anyway, that was the start of it 18 years ago. And as I was talking about the philosophies of this product, it was very much fitness, strength and stretch and preparation for a physical event. And then I uh, I had been a personal trainer and, and went out of fitness and went into a kind of a more corporate job, but I decided to recertify fitness, started emphasizing and focusing on prenatal postpartum. And as I was educating people, I was learning about a connection with diastasis. So uh, a diastasis recti is something that happens in to, to pretty could happen to anybody, but very commonly in pregnancy and formed a second business called belly zinc. And we wanted to optimize postpartum recovery. So we manufactured our own, our own postpartum wrap and coupled it with a restorative exercise program, then created a certification for other fitness professionals. Cause we recognize that this is like a major, uh, void in the fitness industry, this topic. Can you explain that for those who don't know what that is? The the diastasis? And diastasis, yeah. Diastasis, diastasis, DRA, there's all sorts of pronunciations and different acronyms. And essentially the term diastasis means separation and recti is the two rectus muscles. So our six pack, the two straps of our six pack muscles. And the term is a bit misleading because Technically, we all have diastasis. We all have a separation. Right. The, the, those two straps of muscle are never fused together. There's always a gap there. And the, the when we're, you know, evaluating somebody, we're assessing for a gap, which is what all research used to be focused on. And now research is looking more at the connective tissue integrity rather than just the size of that gap. But anyway, that's what it is. And there's some research to show a tie to pelvic floor dysfunction mm -hmm. as well. So it's part of the conversation. And, uh, but along the way, so running these two businesses, 
I experienced incontinence one time after the birth of my second. And I thought, well, hold on a minute. And this was as I was starting to learn more about pelvic floor and, and start to collaborate with pelvic health physical therapists. And I realized that there was a a whole, it wasn't just about preventing tearing. There was a whole function and muscle piece that I wasn't even, didn't even consider, even though I was a fitness professional. Um, and then I learned about pelvic floor physical therapy. As I mentioned, I went and had an evaluation, found that I had an early stage, uh, it's called a rectocele. So even though I didn't have any external tearing, there was a lot of scar tissue inside and right around the location of that scar tissue was where this rectocele. So the rectum bulges into the vagina. I had zero symptoms, but I just thought, okay, good to know. And I carried on. And then several years later, as I was now starting to experience what I now know was perimenopause, had no idea at the time. I just had all these crazy weird symptoms, constipation being one of them out of the blue. I'd always been the most regular person in the world and constipation was all of a sudden here. And so then um, I developed a stage two uterine prolapse and also my rectocele was more advanced, but also I had no precursors other than knowing that uterine prolapse could happen. I had no symptoms. It just all of a sudden one day I had a, I was having sex with my husband and felt like he hit something and went and saw my physio who I had seen probably six months prior. And she said, yeah, your uterus is moving South. So Hmm. Then that was that. And it was around that time that I learned this new exercise technique called hypopressives, which we, I'm sure we will talk about as well. And I was able to reverse my uterine prolapse, but I was not able to reverse my rectocele. So I lived with that for nine years and ended up having surgery two years ago. So I've been through the full gamut of (laughs) pelvic floor dysfunction personally, and also worked with many people who've experienced it as well. What was your exercise life like during this whole journey, personally? Uh, so I had always been very active. Right before I got pregnant, uh, I was I was I ran a lot. That was my main thing. I loved running. And just before I got pregnant the first time, I started to develop a lot of knee pain. So classic IT band stuff. And three months later, after I had I first had that, I got pregnant, and I thought, okay, I will just stop running. I'll take my pregnancy off. And then when I tried to go back afterwards, it was still there. And that became seven years of trying to figure out why I had knee pain. And um, so I was kind of, I tried to run. I love running so much. I tried to do it. It just, but my knee was holding me back. So I started to incorporate way more resistance training and yoga. So um, I've never been a power lifter. I've never done CrossFit. I've never done really super high intense, but I lift decently heavy weights and I also love yoga and I do a lot of hiking and what have you. So that was what I was doing all throughout this journey. That being said, part of the perimenopause phase was also, uh, I developed for the first time a lack of motivation and interest Mm. in exercise. So even though I knew that I should, and I would do it, I I didn't do it as often or with as much vigor as I had previously done before. So I can look back and like, was maybe was that a protective element? Could things have been worse for me? Or was it just, that's just the way that it was. Who knows? I I will never know. But um, so even, even with prolapse, I still did all, I still lifted weights. I still did yoga. I still carried on and I mitigated symptoms with different position changes, um, a different choice on a particular day, 
Um, and also with hypopressives, that was a huge catalyst to improving symptoms for me and eventually reversing the uterine prolapse. Before we move into those specifics, I'm curious when and how that motivation came back. Did it come back? <laughs> Tell me it came back. It did. Yes. Yes, okay. it did. Yeah. So um, part of part of perimenopause for me was uh, first, it was when I first started learning, uh, like I knew instinctively that hormones were a piece of it. I didn't know a lot about hormones, but I just knew crazy murder scene periods, big, heavy clots. I knew something hormonally was wrong. Medical doctors said everything was normal started reading a lot of books, seeing a naturopathic doctor. And as I did little quizzes in perimenopause, they would say, you know, high estrogen, low, all, all that kind of stuff. But hypothyroidism came up a lot. And I didn't have any, other than the constipation, I didn't present as somebody with hypothyroidism. But the more I dove down that route, I learned about Hashimoto's. And so there, that was my story where I had a little bit of autoimmunity going on there as well. So who knows if perimenopause was exacerbated by that, or if that exacerbated perimenopause, who knows, but long story short, once I started to understand more about, um, like I did lots of different therapies and ended up choosing bioidentical hormones that did make a difference for me significantly and specifically testosterone, I think made the biggest difference for me. Interesting. We've done a whole show on Hashimoto's. It's so it's very, very common. Um, and that sort of intersection is super confusing. So yes. Um, wow. Interesting. Okay. So let's go to the initial premise here. When you reached out to me, you ca- you said, I quote, I can't help but think of all the women who want to lift heavy and do sprint training and plyometrics who aren't because they are afraid of leaking, making their prolapse worse, et cetera. I, you know, the first thing I, I'd love to know is like, can can all of these women get to this point where they can lift heavy and run and jump if they have these issues? I say yes. That being said, I think there there's always going to be a it depends scenario on a lot of different things. So we can look at some of the risk factors. We can look at the the condition and the the stage of a pelvic floor dysfunction that a person may have at the time, um, and we can also some people, um, let me talk back up a little bit. So it's just about 27, 28 ish percent. So if you look at research, just under 30% of women have some form of pelvic floor disorder, uh, incontinence wise. So incontinence is where urine leaks out of our body when we don't want to. And there's a few different types of incontinence. It can be also fecal or anal incontinence as well, but generally speaking, urine, urinary incontinence is about somewhere between 30 to 40 ish percent and pelvic organ prolapse, which is where the bladder, uterus, rectum, other things as well, but those are the three most common, can bulge into or descend into the vagina. Statistically, 50% of women who've given birth will have some degree of prolapse. We also know that severity doesn't indicate, sorry, symptoms do not indicate severity. So somebody being told they have a prolapse can all of a sudden make them symptomatic they may never have known that they had it. And so I am still a believer in preventive health and seeing a pelvic floor physical therapist to see if you have one to keep it in track. But sometimes just the knowledge that you have it is enough to create symptoms. And sometimes it's the symptoms or the thought of it that holds us back. Not like it's the thought that we have it, not necessarily the symptom that is holding us us back. And um, so I do believe that, yes, 
regardless of whether you have a prolapse or not, or have urine, urinary incontinence or fecal incontinence or not, that you can and would benefit from elements of high intensity activity. That doesn't mean though, that we should just open the floodgates and go crazy. We need to consider things we know of as risk factors, such as constipation in their past, um, uh, how many vaginal births or cesarean births. So vaginal is an increased risk. Um, there's what, what type of work do they do? So there's a link between people who have heavy lifting jobs where they're exposed to heavy lifting every single day for long periods of time. Uh, the number of times or the frequency that you're going to be doing the lifting as well. If you look at CrossFit people, they have a significantly higher incidence of incontinence, actually, most commonly. And we then look at and say, well, you know, just because they have more incontinence, is it for everybody who does incontinence, sorry, (laughs) everybody who does CrossFit three times a week or four times? So the people who do it five times a week, you know, are going to have and do have more symptoms. So there's a lot of it depends scenarios in there. But I think we also have tools like pelvic floor physical therapy, pessaries, the hypopressive program, pelvic floor exercise, all these things that we know can improve the reaction time of the pelvic floor, can improve the strength of the pelvic floor. So if we're if we're mitigating some of the risks, then to me, there should be no reason why we can't have elements of the higher intensity in our life. Right. No, that makes that makes perfect sense. For decades, running shoes have been researched, tested, and designed for men. Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. Hedda's has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedda's at Hedda's.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. 
it is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support, and the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the Otter is stuffed with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and Otter has taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. So let's let's get into that. Like if I'm not sure the best way to to break all of these down. You've you've mentioned a lot of different therapies. So where do we start and you know what does it look like? I always start with pelvic floor physical therapy. I think this is one of the most underused women's health resources that we have and very few people know about. It's starting to become more talked about for sure, but it still is relatively unheard of. And I, you know, I've been talking about this for 18 years and I'm still surprised when people say, I've never heard of that before. Cause I feel like every day I say it and I'm, people must be, <laughs> I understand, <laughs> <hearing it. laughs> but um, yeah, so that's always where I would start. If somebody has access geographically and financially to a pelvic floor physical therapist, that would be my number one recommendation. And these are professionals who have their, their, a regular physiotherapist, plus they have additional training specific to the pelvic floor. I would say most of them have a primarily female-based population, but men do have pelvic floors as well. So they can also see a pelvic floor physical therapist and receive treatment. And they are licensed to evaluate and treat beyond the entrance to the vagina. I would say nine times out of 10, the internal evaluation component will be an through the vagina, but there could also be a rectal evaluation as well. And sessions are usually about an hour. And if we think about any other time where we've had some sort of exploration to our vagina, it's usually during a pap and we usually cannot wait for it to be over. Thankfully it is fairly quick, it involves a speculum and that's it. Um, and with a pelvic floor physical therapist, there's a whole body approach. The internal evaluation is maybe five to 10 minutes ish and treatment may extend that time. But we look at, or not me, but um, the pelvic floor physical therapist would look at the breathing mechanics, posture, movement, um, movement strategies, then look at health history and symptoms and decide what are contributing factors to the leaking or to the sensations of heaviness or whatever it is that they, so that'd be my, my kind of gold standard. That being said, not everybody has access. So we have thankfully other, and, and now the world of online exercise has exploded as well. So we have lots of other options, but Kegel. So I'll talk about Kegels now. That is the most common exercise that people think about when they hear pelvic floor exercise. And as I'd mentioned before, Dr. Arnold Kegel saw women, his patients experiencing challenges with contracting and relaxing their pelvic floor after childbirth. So he used biofeedback to help them connect with that muscle, that, that, that group of muscles. And we have evidence to show 
Kegel's work. So a Kegel is essentially a voluntary contract with a bit of an, uh, an upward motion and a release of the pelvic floor muscles. Evidence-based that they work. However, most people do them incorrectly and it's not their fault because we've never been assessed. We've never been taught. And usually, you know, it's been said, go home and do your Kegels, or we've been given a brochure and that's it, or we Google it. <laughs> and there's all sorts of misinformation there too. So it becomes this elusive exercise that nobody's really totally sure if they're doing because it's a part, it's a part of the body we can't see. It's internal. You can't see like I flex my bicep. You can actually see something. <laughs> totally. Yeah. So, so then people do, you know, do them, but they are doing them incorrectly, often squeezing inner thighs or squeezing their glutes or bearing down. And then they go, oh, well, I tried Kegels and they don't work. Um, but anyway, so that's that's the the basic premise of Kegels. And I think they're also a little bit, uh, they, they miss the mark in a sense because they don't train the pelvic floor dynamically and don't necessarily consider the reaction time of the pelvic floor. So to connect with that group of muscles and to establish kind of the mind body, absolutely, I would start there and, and pelvic floor physical therapists can help assess your ability to contract and relax. But we need to progress that. So whether that is with Kegel weights or whether that is with changing the postures and positions that you do Kegels in. And the approach that I take is to incorporate it into whole body movement. I think that just, it covers more basis um, with regards to, to the, the reaction time of the pelvic floor, the strength and endurance, and also the need for that group of muscles to relax. We also don't consider that people think of, Oh, I, I I'm leaking. Therefore I must be weak. Therefore I need to squeeze or lift more. And oftentimes they actually have more tone and they need to work more on the relaxation component. And then the final thing before we move on would be, um, a hypopressive practice. So hypopressive means low pressure. And this was a technique that a physiotherapist in, uh, I believe it was Belgium at the time. Um, he saw a woman, he, he was using a speculum, which is not typical of physical therapists, uh, pelvic floor physios, but he was going to insert a speculum with a woman who had a prolapse and, and she, it startled her a little and he saw her prolapse retract and he thought, okay, how do I, what happened there? How do we, how do we replicate that? And he then went, you know, developed essentially a fitness technique that incorporates specific postures that don't create a lot of intra-abdominal pressure. And to those postures, there's a breath series of breaths that we do that are coupled with an apnea, which is a breath hold. And during that apnea, there's a an activation of the sort of an expansion of the ribs that mimics what happens on an inhalation, but the, there's no breath coming in. There's a breath hold. So there's no breath coming in and that alters the pressure and creates a bit of a suction or a vacuum. And the, the there's a ligament that attaches behind our belly button onto our bladder. And when we do this apnea, there's an elevation and activation of that. You're not activating the ligament, but the movement is stimulating that ligament and it creates an elevation in the bladder, which can also then influence the uh, uterus. And over time, there's been many people who have been able to improve or re reverse their prolapse can also help with incontinence as well. Okay. So just a, a couple of questions in there to unpack just a bit. When you mentioned that you incorporated Kegels into a whole body practice, what does that look like in application? So essentially I start out with 
a Kegel, essentially. Um, I, I, when I was working with the two other women, we formed the company called Bellies Inc. When we wanted to establish a postpartum recovery protocol, Kegels were going to form a, a, a part of that, but we wanted to highlight the fact that the pelvic floor is part of the core and it works in synergy with the diaphragm. And so we use the term core breath. So I always start out teaching people the core breath and the importance of posture and how that can influence the relationship between the diaphragm and the pelvic floor. Inhalations are when the pelvic floor is expanding and relaxing. Exhales are where the pelvic floor is contracting and lifting. So getting people to connect with that and feeling it in their body. So putting them in different positions, potentially laying down on their back, sitting upright, especially on a stability ball is good. And also a wide leg child's pose. Those would be the three most common positions I would have people in to establish that connection. Once they've got that, then we're going to layer it into movement. So we start out with something simple like a pelvic tilt or a bridge. So we exhale and activate the pelvic floor just before we tilt posteriorly into the pelvic tilt or just before we lift our pelvis up off the floor into a bridge. You can do it with bicep curls. You can do it with squats. You can do it with lunges. And the the, the reason why we pre-contract the pelvic floor on the exhalation just before we do the movement is to start, is to retrain that reaction time of the pelvic floor. So sometimes we leak because the pelvic floor isn't reacting at the right time. And so to retrain the anticipatory element of the pelvic floor, we want to pre-contract then move. So it's almost like saying, remember pelvic floor, you need to be engaged. I'm going to create some intra-abdominal pressure in this movement. And then over time, the more we do that, it patterns that. And then we start to contract while we sort of, as we move. And the intention ideally is that we don't have to do that anymore. We've retrained it. The pelvic floor then is to like, okay, I remember I'm supposed to pre-contract and I, and it just does it. So that's the intention. And then of course, once you've layered it into a bridge or a squat or what have you, then we can start to progressively load it just like any other prog progressive loading principles from fitness. You can now do a bridge with, you know, like do a hip thrust. So now you have weight on, or you could do squats, holding dumbbells or a, a dumb, um, sorry, a barbell behind you. And so then we start to do the progressive loading. And then we can also then start to make it even more dynamic for people like runners, where we need to have a bit of explosive element in there as well, or plyometrics. Excellent. And then with the hypopressives, is that something that women can do on their own? Is there an app? Do they have to see someone? Like how do how do they, because it sounds a little complex in until you maybe apply it. Yes, it, it is. And I remember a good friend of mine who we had known each other since we were 15 and we were both personal trainers. And uh, when I first started learning about pelvic floor, you know, and, and trying to incorporate it into fitness, there was a course I was kind of co-teaching with a urogynecologist. He was the creator of the Pilates, pelvic floor Pilates program. And I invited her to come to the course. And in that he was talking about sort of certain symptoms and she had always complained of hip pain. And I said, well, you should go see Julia, who was my business partner, who was a pelvic floor physical therapist. And she found that my friend had a prolapse and that was sort of like an, an end of life for her. She was, she was such an avid exerciser. And this was a really terrible diagnosis as it is for, for every, for, for pretty much every single person. And um, anyway, I said, you know what, I've been, I've been 
kind of watching this person online. I've been learning about this new technique. Maybe try it. She talks about how it's helpful for prolapse. So my friend Trista is her name. She started to watch these videos and she's like, I got to learn this. And she flew to Spain where this person was and she learned the technique and she came back and she had improved her prolapse by stage. So she went back to Spain and got the second level. And she is now the Hypopressives Canada kind of master trainer. And at the start, learning through video is a little bit difficult. So I would say if you can work with somebody it's, it would be, I would consider it to be ideal, but again, not everybody has access. So there are, I, I have videos in my app and my programs. I do online zoom coaching and I have only ever had one person that just simply couldn't get it. And oddly enough, it was a fitness professional who you would think they have better awareness of the body, but she just couldn't grasp the concept. But I'd say, you know, pretty much everybody once they're told and walked through it can, uh, can navigate and learn the technique for sure. And then is this Pilates part of that? Is it under the umbrella? No. Okay. So it's a totally different thing. So what can you talk a bit about what that is? Mm -hmm. So Dr. Bruce Crawford is a urogynecologist in Reno, Nevada. And back when I was starting this and, you know, I I decided, okay, I'm going to turn this into a business. And at the time we didn't have the social media we have now. Twitter was around, we're kind of just emerging and hashtags were just starting. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to get Twitter. And I put in my hashtag pelvic floor and I checked every day. And for so long it was crickets, no response, no response. And then one day there was a, a hit, so to speak. And here's this doctor talking about this Pilates program. And so I, I, looked at his website and and I was so excited because up to that point, everything that I had been reading and learning about pelvic floor was that you had to isolate the pelvic floor muscles, no involvement of anything else. You have to isolate. And that never made sense to me because I, I don't believe really anything works in isolation. Right. So I was really intrigued by first of all, that it was a medical doctor talking about it. That was also very rare and a surgeon And he was looking at it as how can I incorporate this into a fitness routine? So he was saying, I'm a surgeon. I'm a good surgeon. Why are people ending up back on my table? There has to be other contributing factors to a recurrence rate or to the development of something new. And he was looking at fitness and movement. So he studied 150, I think it was different exercises from yoga, Pilates, resistance training, fitness, and wanted to see where in the movement, the pelvic floor was the most engaged. So he used wireless EMG on the perineum, the deep abdominals, the transversus, the inner thighs and the glutes. And that was sort of his unit, the, the, all the, the, the synergistic muscles. So where in the movement was pelvic floor most engaged and, or sorry, which movements engaged the pelvic floor and then where in the movement was it the most engaged? And he narrowed it down to a top 10 and created the Pilates program out of that. And it was very similar to the to the way that I had been teaching people. And I ended up going down to his lab in Reno and getting hooked up myself and comparing the way that I was teaching it with the breath versus no breath. And there wasn't actually a heightened activation when you added in the the voluntary contraction and the, and the breath, which I was excited about. And I ended up teaching with him for a couple of years. And um, 
absolutely adore his work, adore his program. And it really has helped so many people. It's very like fundamentally has similar principles in that it is looking at voluntary activation of the pelvic floor, coordinating into whole body movement. He also adds in a layer of quick contract release because the pelvic floor has the need to kind of manage us throughout the day at a low tone, but also react very quickly and with a lot of force if we cough or sneeze or jump or, or do something. So he, his trains that element in there as well. Are these either the Pilates or the hypopressives? I'm imagining that like any exercise, these are things that you do continuously, even after you quote unquote have trained these areas. Is that correct? A thousand percent. Yes. So I think another kind of challenge with Kegels is people do them, the the people who who are consistent, they'll do them and then they notice that things change and then they think, okay, I'm cured. It's it's better. It's better and I'm fine. And, And that's where symptoms are a pain in the ass, excuse my language, but they're also, they remind us in a way, right? And they can also be strong motivators. So when they're gone, that's obviously the ultimate of of what we want, but then we are, we need something else to remind us that this, in my opinion, is a lifestyle practice. It's not, it's not just a, something we do as a quick fix. And, and uh, another note I'll say there is people who have surgery for incontinence or prolapse or what have you are, are often told sometimes by their care providers, or sometimes they just have the belief that, well, you don't, you don't need to do pelvic floor exercise anymore because we fixed the problem. And I wholeheartedly disagree with that. And in my opinion, I think we need it even more after we've had surgery. So, uh, yeah, so a lot, a lot to unpack there with Kegels and pelvic floor exercise too. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I've had a, a urogynecologist on the show and talked, you know, she talked a lot about the surgical elements of it, mm-hmm. but, you know, she works out in Colorado and she's like, I've got like women in their seventies that still want to like portage their kayaks, you know, so that it's, totally. it's, yeah. So she, she works with them and all these, she hasn't talked about the programs you're talking about, which is why I was so interested to to include you in this broader mm-hmm. conversation because mm-hmm. it is so important. So many women leave leave their activities because of it. And we want to prevent that any way we can. Yeah. And and sometimes it's kind of as, as I was mentioning earlier, there are some people who are not doing it because they think it will make it worse. Right. So there can be people who don't really have any symptoms, but they think, oh, I, I know that I have this, so I shouldn't do this because it's a risk factor. Sometimes they maybe have been told you shouldn't lift heavy or you shouldn't do this anymore. And then there's other people who have the symptoms, actual physical symptoms, and it it is interfering with them, uh, like the enjoyment or certain movements exacerbate, or maybe they feel worse at the end of the day. And so then equate that with that exercise makes my prolapse worse. But I think we have to look again at principles of fitness where um, there was one study that was looking at the bladder neck mobility and also the the um, hypertrophy of the sphincters in people doing pelvic floor exercise versus not. And people doing pelvic floor exercise, and this was just you know really more of a Kegel type practice, not so much a whole body movement, but Kegel type practice experienced um, greater hypertrophy. So bulking, so to speak, of the muscles around the, the the sphincters, which obviously is going to translate into reduction in either symptoms and or the actual loss of urine or other types of symptoms. So I think we, we need to factor that in. Um, 
and make sure that it's part of, so fitness professionals collaborating with pelvic health physios, learning this as well, having it as a part of their screening. So they understand, I mean, when you think of the statistics I said earlier, the majority of people who are training women, the majority of your client population, half of your client population has prolapse and some of them don't know it. And if we aren't considering birth history, um, you know, smoking, um, collagen, family history, uh, like uh, there's so many things and factors to consider and that this person's also going to reach menopause. I was just going to say that. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, you know, we're, we're missing a lot there and there could be, you know, especially if we're seeing, I wonder why my client goes pee every time before her session, or why does she excuse herself halfway through our session? Why doesn't she like this exercise? And they just, they don't, they don't know what they don't know. So I would also, um, in part that I believe pelvic floor, uh, sorry, uh, fitness professionals need some education in pelvic floor and to work collaboratively with physios. And that helps provide a really great, um, you know, team for that person so they can navigate all the movement that they want and get all the benefits that they need. And incorporate it in their training plans. I mean, if we're, if you're going to talk especially about perimenopause and menopause, we know that there is a significant loss of tensile strength and contraction and muscle. And we're talking about muscles here, you know, just like you had mentioned. So if we're working all of those other muscles, it occurs to me that there there might be this link that we're not wor- working that can become our weaker, if not already is our weaker link, which is if you've had children and all the other things that we started talking about has already been compromised probably in some way. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And, and the, the onset of perimenopause and menopause is, you know, as, as many people in your audience are going to know of all the amazing topics you've talked about with hormonal fluctuations and the influence to the pelvis, there's a whole kind of subsection of menopause called genitourinary syndrome of menopause, which is the urinary symptoms, the fecal symptoms, the vaginal dryness and pain. And, and there's a whole kind of umbrella. It's an umbrella term for lots of things that influence our vaginal health and our, our pelvic health. So knowing that the majority of people, uh, well, all of us will go through that And I think the statistic is about 80-ish percent of women will experience vaginal dryness. And that is not something that gets better over time. And not a lot of fitness professionals know that, but even people who are navigating it on their own, that can be the time when the symptoms also show up for the first time, or they start screaming a little louder. So things like incontinence, we're, we're told in by media and by lots of people that it's just part of being a woman. And it's, that's just what happens when you've given birth and that's what happens as you age. And so there's an acceptance of it. And a lot of people have just been wearing pads, accepting that that's just the way that it is. And then they get to menopause and all of a sudden those things like the leaking is even more, they now have really strong urges. So they're starting to have complete loss of their bladder. And now they're like, okay, I can't live with this anymore. It's time to do something. So women wait on average six and a half to seven years before they actually address a problem. I think on the flip side, I think a man would probably wait about 6.5 seconds if something was wrong with his penis. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think you're, I think that's a correct assessment. Um, so where do you, uh, we had, we had mentioned a couple of things that I want to circle back to, especially with regards to the kegels and the, um, 
the pessary thing. So how how useful do you feel the devices like the weights and that they have even have some sort of feedback implements that you can use to help women know that they're engaging those muscles correctly and, you know, get, make progress, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they can be a great adjunct. So at the end of the day, the person fundamentally needs to know how to activate and relax their pelvic floor muscles. So that's, that needs to be established first before those things are going to be successful. The challenge is a lot of people see the ads that are all over the place. And again, we, we were given the impression that I am weak therefore I need to strengthen. This is going to strengthen my pelvic floor. But if we don't understand the status of our pelvic floor and why it's happening, is it reaction time? Is it because there's overactivity? Is it scar tissue? Is it laxity? So without that information, I'm not going to say that some people wouldn't benefit from a device. Absolutely. It's going to work for some people, but not everybody. So if you have the money to invest in a device, invest in a pelvic floor physical therapist first, if you can, and then they can help you decide if something like a biofeedback device would be helpful. Now there's biofeedback devices are the ones that would you insert and most of them now attach to an app on your phone. And it's kind of like a video game where you're trying to make birds you know, avoid <laughs> clouds in the sky or something like that. That sounds kind of fun, actually. <laughs> and that is, it's true. It's a benefit. Yeah. It, it is it is more motivating than just sitting and thinking about, you know, contracting, relaxing your pelvic floor. So it is engaging. And that can, again, when we talk about consistency, if that's going to keep you consistent and you're doing it correctly, great, that's perfect. So th- there's those are the biofeedback devices. Then there's the Kegel weights. And this is... um you know, for a long time, people would say, oh, Kegel weights are bad because it just contributes to clenching of the pelvic floor, which it could for some people for sure. But if you're using them in a way that is like resistance training, where you put put it in and you would do a voluntary contraction and relaxation and change positions of your body. So sit upright, kneel, stand, it influences something that is a, it's a load that we need to adapt to. So I think just like we pick up a barbell or a dumbbell for our, our biceps. It's the same principles, it's a group of muscles. I think there can absolutely be benefit. And then there's the sub the, the other section of devices, which are therapeutic um, and in the sense of uh, tissue. So there's one that I really like called the, the V fit. If you're in Canada, it's called the V sculpt. And it is a, it looks like a, a white dildo actually, but it has red light, therapy, it has infrared heat, it has vibration, and all of those together help stimulate collagen production. It has helped with dryness. It has helped with sensation for many people. And the relax, the, uh, sorry, the vibration can elicit relaxation in people. So just inserting it and not doing anything and just letting it sit there, it can help relax. But if you do your Kegels with that vibration, similar to the vibration platforms that we see, that there's some evidence to show an, an increased recruitment of and, and blood flow and circulation. So if you do your Kegels against that vibration, again, it can be a little bit of help when you have something to contract against. And um, so that's my favorite of, of all like, you know, two vagina 2.0 <laughs> devices. That's the one that I like. I like the best, but, um, but again, before you go there, I totally would recommend seeing a physio first, um, and make sure that the user meaning us (laughs) is doing, doing what we need to do effectively. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And can you tell me 
Because I honestly do not know. What is a pessary? A pessary is like an orthotic. So if you think about an orthotic in our shoe that is meant to support arches, and I know there's different schools of thought of whether we should or shouldn't wear orthotics, but same thing. That's essentially what a, a pessary is, is it's inserted into the vagina and it can provide support to organs that have been displaced. Um, it can provide support to the walls and it, it's a many different shapes and sizes. The most common one is a ring. So if you are okay. getting assessed for or fitted for a pessary, it typically is through a urogynecologist. Uh, sometimes it might be a nurse continence advisor. And there are some places that are starting to open it up to pelvic health physios. So that's not worldwide. It's not global yet, but the most common person would be a urogynecologist and the ring is typically where you start. So it's, it looks like a, it looks like a skinny donut if you could with, with a bit of a bigger center and it's folded, inserted into the vagina. And then when it opens up, those the edges of the donut or the circle, so to speak, will press against the walls of the vagina and can support organs and can support the walls and can be life changing for so many people. That being said, there's different sizes, there's different shapes and dependent on the type or types, if you have multiple prolapse you have, it can be a, a it can take a few times to get the right fit or the right shape. Um, and I will say rectoceles, it can be a bit more challenging to find a pessary that will work simply because of the position. It's usually a little bit lower down and pessaries will sometimes get inserted and actually go on top of the rectoceles bulge, which is, which can make them worse. But there's also some ones you can purchase on Amazon. So again, if you don't have access to a urogynecologist or if it's too much of a pain in the butt, there's something called the poise impressa, which is inserted like a tampon but it's non-absorbable and it, it, it opens up sort of like in a, a small square and then a diamond and then another small square, which square doesn't sound great because it, some people do comment that the edges are a little bit irritating and especially perimenopause and menopause. If we don't have a lot of estrogen in our tissues, it could create some challenge, but it's an option for some people to try. I wear it actually temporarily. If I'm doing a really heavy lift day, I don't have a prolapse anymore, but just psychologically, I like it to give me a little, I feel like I have an extra little bit of support in there. And people who wear pessaries, there was some research that was looking at, you know, can we prevent it prolapse from from getting worse? And there's kind of two elements there. It, it helps reduce symptoms or eliminate symptoms. So then people are more likely to be able to go and do the other things that are beneficial from an exercise perspective which in turn can benefit the pelvic floor. But also when, when we eliminate the bulges, the muscles also then aren't trying to navigate the, the position of those organs that's not proper anatomy. And so when we can alleviate that, all of a sudden the muscles now have a bit more freedom to work as they need to, which we could argue could then end up strengthening them even more. So I think pessaries are hugely valuable and there's some cool technology. There's a there's one company that's looking at doing ultrasound imaging and then 3D printing based on a person's anatomy, which I think is really, really exciting for more complex cases. That's pretty rad. It's like a weight belt for your in yeah. internals. Yeah. yeah. I like thank you for that. That was a that was a really great explanation. You know, I I, I keep meaning to ask and I haven't asked, how did you resolve your constipation? 
because that is a big contribute contributing factor to a lot of these. Yeah. yeah. So um, coughing, constipation, and childbirth are kind of the That's top. That's what the urogynecologist said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are the biggest ones with regards to contributors or exas- things that exacerbate pelvic floor dysfunction or bring them on in the first place. So for me, it was, um, I felt fortunate that the world of the internet here is here and there's lots of people now talking about gut health. Um, so what I found along the way, I was trying all sorts of different things. Um, it was partly uh, diet. Uh, I was I did drink water. I did have a decent amount of fiber. It didn't, wasn't really that, um, um, but it was also part of it was I wasn't moving as much as I used to. I had a lot of stress with two young kids and um, running two businesses. So had to deal with that. The starting to get the hormone piece in check with bioidentical hormones. So I started out with progesterone. I was also doing some Chinese herbs. I was doing a whole bunch of things, but um, the other things, um, removing caffeine, removing alcohol, getting better sleep, it, it all just kind of little steps along the way all made little bits of difference. Um, alcohol was one of the biggest in terms of my overall health. And, um, and then the other thing that was helpful for me was, um, actually tracking my fiber and reducing it a titch. I found that I was like, so focused on, I need fiber. I need fiber. I was getting arguably too much fiber, um, but also digestive enzymes and, and hydrochloric acid. So I did a stomach acid test. There's a, you can Google it. It's a baking soda. You take a bit in water and you see if you burp and I, I didn't. So if you burp within three minutes, it's a good sign that you have some decent, um, stomach acid. And if you don't, it's an indicator that maybe you have low stomach acid. So, I had, if I look back now, I had all sorts of other things that would point to the fact that I probably had low stomach acid, but I just hadn't had anybody (laughs) say that to me. So that was a big thing for me too, was um, a digestive enzyme that includes hydrochloric acid in it made a big difference. Um, Bone broth, like lots of things. I did so many different gut healing therapies along the way. I can't point out to one that was the absolute kicker, but it was a lot of focusing on gut health. I love Dr. Willby fiber fueled. Um, I read, I read gut health books all over the place and, um, and bone broth, reducing stress, optimizing my fiber. And then this piece of hydrochloric acid and digestive enzymes were really instrumental. I still need to get to the fact I still need to find out why do I have low stomach acid? I'm still trying to figure that one out, (laughs) but I'll get there. Yeah. I mean, you seem to be on a good path and I mean, some things just are built in, you know? Yeah. They're for whatever reason. Right. Yeah. I'll say that my, my forties, I, I struggled a lot in my forties with all sorts of weirdness and now being 51 post-menopause, I feel better than I felt in a long, long time. So it has taken, it's been a journey. I'm in a way grateful for the journey because I've learned a lot. Uh, I'm glad to be on this side. And, and I think that navigating the actual transition was really easy at the end of the day, because of all the work that I had done trying to figure everything else out. (laughs) Right. So let's talk a bit about supplements. You did a really interesting piece on collagen um, very recently. Um, And I'm, I'm, I'd love for you to talk because, you know, when we're talking again about 
connective tissues and musculoskeletal health. I mean, the pelvic floor is part of that whole picture. And I think that because we can't see it, that we don't really think about it. Um, do you, in the end of the day, recommend collagen? It sounds like you do. And are there other supplements that you find useful as well? Yeah, there's, there's right now, there is no research that says supplementing with collagen will improve your pelvic floor function or anything. There's, there is no research about that. There is some looking some research looking at the type of collagen in the pelvic floor and the, the amount, sort of the presentation of collagen in people who have prolapse versus those who don't. And people who, you know, this is early research, but um, general is there's a reduction or less type one and three collagen in people who have prolapse compared to people that don't have prolapse. So we can infer that potentially there's a, there's a piece. And we also know that connective tissue disorders like Ehlers-Danlos, they have a higher incidence of pelvic organ prolapse as well. So I think that there is absolutely a role that collagen is playing within the integrity of the pelvic floor. Now, does that mean that if you already have a pelvic floor dysfunction, that supplementing with collagen is going to cure or fix or heal? We don't have any research to establish that right now. That being said, I'm not going to wait for surgery. Sorry, I'm not going to wait for research to to tell me that this very low risk supplement is, you know, I, I there is research that supports it for skin and for nails, and knowing that that collagen fibers in the skin are the same as they are in the pelvic floor, we can say that okay, most likely there will be some sort of a benefit, even if it like. I take collagen. I can't say that I've noticed that I, you know, one day I woke up and I thought, well, my pelvic health feels different today. No, but I also know again, all the things that can potentially happen with the shifts of hormones and less hyaluronic acid and less muscle mass and all that sort of stuff as we age, I take it as a preventive. I hope it's going to, and think that it does play a role. So yes, I do recommend collagen. There's one particular type of collagen peptide called Verisol that is the one that was in the studies. So I would look for one that has Verisol in it simply because we know that that one has been researched, but I'm hopeful that there will be more research about collagen supplementation specific to the pelvic floor. There's also some studies that looked at vitamin D deficiencies and obviously vitamin D was talked a lot about during coronavirus about all sorts of health implications. So um, and pelvic floor is is not immune. So I supplement with vitamin D for lots of reasons, pelvic floor being one of them. And also um, recently I saw one that was talking about glutathione. glutathione. So high, if we have high um, oxidative stress, it, it, there's an implication to the, pelvic health, to the pelvic floor as well. So if we can take supplements that will reduce that oxidative stress with glutathione being one of the you know, main anti antioxidants or NAC, which is the precursor to, so I take NAC. I have taken liposomal glutathione before, but, um, I just, I take NAC now. So that's another one that I think we have some for, for not just pelvic health, but lots of other reasons I think can provide some, some value as well. So those are the, the main three from a research and that I take as well. Is there anything that we have not covered in this whole spectrum that you thought would be good for the uh, audience to know about? I think we've been pretty thorough. Um, I, I guess just the takeaway messages that I have are, if you can see a pelvic floor physio, 
or physical therapist. So physio in Canada, physical therapist in the United States, same thing. Um, and I, I think we should be treating our pelvic health kind of like we do our oral health in that we have, we brush and floss and do, we should do pelvic floor exercise. We see the dentist once or twice a year. We should see the pelvic floor physio once or twice a year. And it just is a preventive therapy. Really. It's checking in with a part of the body, knowing that things change as we age, just go see the professional that can help us keep things in check. So that would be my overriding message to people and, um, and don't accept pads as your destiny. You can absolutely move and do all the things you, you like, and there's lots of, there's a holistic side to pelvic health. Really. It's not just go home and do your Kegels. There's so much more diet, lifestyle, posture, breathing, addressing trauma. Like there's lots of layers in there, but, um, but just start somewhere, just start at least with the knowledge that suffering is, I'm not interested in suffering and I hope that others aren't. And I hope that they now realize they don't need to, and that there are so many tools available for them to be able to move forward. Speaking of tools, I would like to give your tools a a bit of a, a plug here. I mean, I know you have an app and you have a 28 day challenge. You have the buff muff app, you know, that you, you shared with me, which I, which I love. Um, is that the time frame? I was curious about the 28 day ta- challenge. Like, is that a time frame which you see women starting to notice benefits if they are, you know, consistent in their yeah, practice? So most people notice in the 28 day challenge, that's, that's always where I recommend people start. It's the, it incorporates that whole retraining philosophy and it, and it, it's about, you know, relaxing overactivity and tight muscles and then working to activate them with different visual cues and putting it into movement. And when people take that challenge within a week or two, I would say the two week mark is usually when most people are noticing some sort of a change, less back pain. I sneezed today and I didn't leak. I didn't wake up to pee, you know, just things that they actually didn't even know were kind of main issues. So around the two week mark, and then the the 28 days is meant to kind of, it's starting to establish that pattern. Right. Right. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for sharing so much of your own journey and for sharing your expertise. I, I think this is, um, I like your, your analogy to oral health. Like it's, it's just such a, an instrumental part of our well being that I firmly believe gets overlooked because we can't see it. Like, I really believe that the fact that we're, it's just this hidden part that, you know, we've been told not to, you know, that has so much stigma around it and all this that we just don't, tend to it the same way but now we really should yeah there's there's a lot of shame and trauma and embarrassment and being told over the years that it is normal um you know but yeah it's a part of the body we can't see but it doesn't mean it doesn't deserve a whole heck of a lot of more attention than it gets well that's our show Join me next week when I sit down with Deanna McCurdy, who is an accomplished mountain biker and off-road triathlete and mom of two, including a special needs child, who was out crushing it until perimenopause hit. And in her own words, her body plummeted and her performance tanked. She shares her story about how she was forced to rest, reset, and make some lifestyle changes with the same intensity as she did her training. And it was a great, inspiring story. So come on back for that one. And until then, as always, stay feisty.
You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause, and please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends, and please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. Stay feisty.